millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The New Statesman. I'm Katie Stallard, and you're listening to World Review from The New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise, and then later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. Today, I'm speaking to Sir Lawrence Friedman, Emeritus Professor of War Studies at King's College London, and the author of numerous books, as well as a regular contributor to The New Statesman. His latest book is Command, The Politics of Military Operations from Korea to Ukraine, which has just been published by Alan Lane. Sir Lawrence, thanks so much for joining us. It's great to have you on the podcast. My pleasure. So as readers of your Substack newsletter will know, the subtitle of this book was originally going to be The Politics of Military Operations from Korea to Afghanistan. But Vladimir Putin launched his invasion of Ukraine, I believe, while you were in the copy editing phase of this book. And you were able to then take in the initial failure of the Russian offensive. So I wonder if we could start there and the extent to which you see the Russian military offensive in Ukraine confirming or disproving some of the key theses of your book in terms of particularly how autocracies approach command and leadership. Yeah, thanks very much. I already had a chapter on Ukraine, I should say, that, and it's still the bulk of the of the relevant chapter in the book, which was on the 2014 annexation of Crimea and then the fermenting of four rebellion in uh, in eastern Ukraine with separatist forces. And what interested me about that, and it seemed to fit in with other things that Putin had done, was that he limited his liabilities that he'd taken, he believed obviously in the role of military force and what it could do for Russia. And actually, he, as far as he was concerned, it had done quite well. But he hadn't taken outlandish risks. And one suspects he didn't necessarily think he was doing so last February. But it meant there was a very stark contrast between how he'd approached the Donbass, say, in 2014 and how he approached it in 2022. And one of the things that, that, that struck me as I was trying to make sense of all of this was that having got himself in a position where nobody could challenge him or would challenge him, and possibly this being aggravated by COVID as well, and the isolation, he'd allowed an idea to ferment in his mind 
as far as one could tell, was not fully implemented in, until almost silly, till, till quite late on in the process, by which was all with one bold move. He could solve his Ukraine problem and possibly solve wider problems of European security in the process. And it's just, so it just struck me as being the sort of thing somebody with supreme power who's got away with things up to that point will try and do. And there are other examples of that. The other thing that, that is relevant to, to Ukraine that, that follows from other examples in the book is what happens when you have very hierarchical command systems so that you don't leave a lot of scope for flexibility and an initiative at, the low, at lower levels. Whereas, of course, partly, I think, out of necessity, the Ukrainians have shown a degree of flexibility. So it fits a pattern. It fits a pattern and makes mistakes that are common to these sorts of regimes. Just to unpack that a little bit, in terms of the initial, just the planning of this, how do you account for just what seems to have been an incomprehensible strategy in terms of this multi-pronged attack? You write in the book that there were, in effect, a number of separate wars being fought all at once. How could that happen? Was it that senior commanders weren't being consulted or that they felt there was only one kind of answer that they could give? It's really hard to know. There was a strategy, clearly, that was essentially to overwhelm Ukraine with multiple offensives and in particular to, to make it grab the Zelensky personally, but certainly to take the capital city of Kiev as quickly as possible. And if you feel you've got the advantage of surprise, then that's not an absurd way of imagining what you might do. But it seems the local commanders had very little idea until the last moment about what that is that they were expected to do and how they were expected to do it. And it was also based, and I think this is again sort of one of the themes of the book, which required paying attention to the political context. The whole thing was based on a very delusional view of Ukraine as not a country with a real independent identity, that the government was a country that had an illegitimate government that with very little support. All of these things led to a gross underestimation of Ukraine, which you didn't have to know Ukraine very well to realize was highly unlikely that these were tough people who'd been, who'd been through a lot through their history and have suffered for their country. I think you know, it was a combination of political delusion, arrogance, and just a lack of planning, which in a way is astonishing how long these troops have been gathering around the border of Ukraine. And in terms of the command and control structure that you've go into it in, in a lot of depth. In the book, how has that really held this operation back in terms of, you know, we've seen these situations with quite senior generals having to go into frontline positions and a number of them being killed? I think you've got to, you've got to look at command in, in sort of three, almost three different stages of the in the first stage, there, there, there were lots of separate commands and they obviously seemed to get in each other's way at times and a lack of coordination, which as particular uh, bits or particular individual offensives got into trouble meant that it was hard to work out how to reinforce each other, where to allocate reserves and so on. The logistical systems began to fall apart as well as a consequence. Then the second stage, which starts, which sort of announced in late March, starts really in April, where they concentrate 
on, on the Donbass and put somebody in charge from the Southern Command is much more focused. The command issues don't appear to be as troublesome, but they're not trying to do that much, really. In fact, it's a sort of a classic, we'll keep on doing what we've been doing the previous day until we succeed. So eventually, just using masses of artillery, they hammered the Ukrainian resistance first in Mariupol, eventually, then in Donetsk. And that's it. They don't achieve much else. And then the stage that we've been in really since late June, early July, where the Ukrainians are taking the initiative increasingly, and they've gone for command posts. They've deliberately tried to undermine the command system. And so that whatever is now sorted out, they may have a much more organized position at the top. At the lower levels of command, they've clearly got problems in terms of how to react to Ukrainian initiatives. None of this is to suggest that in all areas that the, the Russian forces fall away and don't know how to fight and so on. In some areas, they clearly fight very, very effectively. In other areas, for example, in Kharkiv at the moment, possibly less. But, but they're hindered all the time because one of the things you're trying to do with command is not only motivate your troops, direct them to the right places, make sure they follow their orders and understand their orders effectively, but at the higher levels, coordinating activities and making sure that your scarce resources, for example, air power or drone surveillance and so on, are effectively utilized. And that seems to be an area where they've been having problems. Last question on this, because I want to get into some of the other case studies in the book, but which is how do you see this playing out? In the months and perhaps the years to come, do you think these underlying weaknesses will continue to have a meaningful effect on the ground? Uh, well, the, the, the most important limitations are, for both sides are, are supplies. Do you have enough people to fight? Do you have enough weapons to fight? Is the ammunition coming forward and so on? On that side, I think the Russians are in a worse position. There's a broader context of economic pressures and potential diplomacy and so on that's harder to anticipate. I don't think it's having the way quite the effect either side would like. Sanctions aren't bringing the Russians to heel, but they're certainly limiting their defense production. While the energy squeeze is hurting the West, but it's not forcing them to put undue pressure on Zelensky. But I think in the battle itself, my sense is the Russians are in quite a bit of difficulty now. I think they're going to struggle because in the end, they're in a place where they're not welcome. And it's the basic problem with military operations is it's much harder to fight amongst a population who don't want you there than when you've got the full backing of your people, which is what Ukraine has. And I think there's asymmetry of motivation, asymmetry of, uh, of intelligence as well, because a lot of the advice on what targets to hit and so on is coming from local people on the ground great risk to themselves. I think those things tell against the Russians. How long? I don't know. But I don't think I don't think either side could sustain this for that for another year, say. But it could certainly go on for months. But on the other hand, these things can end quite quickly. One, once things break, they could, they, you can be surprised by the speed of events, as we saw in a different setting in Afghanistan last summer, that armies that think they're going to lose don't necessarily fight very well. What do you think are the best historical parallels to be thinking about in terms of the Ukrainian conflict? You write, one of your chapters is, is on Saddam Hussein. Hmm. Is that a good case study to think about in terms of weaknesses of autocratic decision-making? Yes, I think so. I think 
the I did, there are parallels. You've always got to be very careful because all, all these situations are very difficult. And Saddam's Iraq is very different from Putin's Russia, because Russia is a much more formidable military power. But if you look at the Iraqi attempt to seize Kuwait, which was initially successful in August 1990, to some extent the whole thing was undermined by their failure to capture the emir of Kuwait, who escaped in his Mercedes to Saudi Arabia. And that meant that he was in a position, the emir was in a position to invoke Article 51 of the UN Charter and to get the support for for the self-defense of the Kuwaiti people and so on, which eventually led to desert storm. It was a political failure right from the start, even though it's military failure wasn't wasn't evident. I, the, the other aspect that people point to, and, I, and this is where I think the parallels are interesting because it gives you a question rather than necessarily an answer, which is Saddam's amazing ability to redefine the outcome of all as it suited him. So even after his forces had flown away from Kuwait in disarray and been battered on, 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 on the road to Basra as they did. He claimed it a victory because the United States called a ceasefire. Uh, sadly, that set us up for uh, for the next rounds, a number of rounds before we got to 2003. So, you know, one of the questions people ask is, because you get a number of narratives around the Russian invasion of, Q, you know, of Ukraine, could you get another narrative that explains to the benefit of the Russian people why it's all been wonderful and successful, but Russian troops are withdrawing? Uh, and that, again, is one of the things that autocrats can do. How credibly is another question. I guess a lot of Russian people would be just quite relieved if the whole thing went away. And if that was the way to do it, then so be it. The nationalists, however, would be extremely unhappy. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads. The best of our reported features and essays, read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including... The historian Colin Kidd on Watergate's renewed relevance in a post-Trump era. Today's obsessions about a deep state took their rise in the 70s amid this climate of anxiety. Jeff Dyer's reflections on how to grow old in America. He was propped up in bed, proudly sporting a badge. Private medicine makes me sick. Maria Vilcek tells the story of how the hard men of Belarusian football took on Alexander Lukashenko. Hundreds of ultras were roughed up and held in custody. One was later found dead in suspicious circumstances. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads from the New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. In terms of the role of military commanders not being able to communicate concerns up the chain, you have a great description in the chapter on Saddam Hussein of him being given a study on the effectiveness on air power and handing it back and saying, I'm sure this is not what you meant. Correct, yeah. this study. How much does that play into the case studies you've looked at of this idea that I guess that the, the political command believes they know better than the generals and the commanders beneath them? Yes, yeah, Saddam was an extreme case, and even he had to, in a sense, he, unfortunately, after 1991, he reverted back to how he'd been in, in the first part of the 80s until he started to lose against Iran, and then did listen to his generals until that was over and he wanted to take over again. And I think it, there's a difference. I think it's important that any political leader at war, or thinking about war, asks pretty hard questions of the generals, doesn't just take their military advice for granted. And I've got a number of quotes in the book from American presidents, all expressing vague contempt for the intellectual capacities of their generals. So I think it's important to challenge, which is different from assuming that you understand all of these things better. I think in this respect, I think one of the interesting case studies in the book is of Nixon in 1972, in the face of the North Vietnamese Easter offensive, when Vietnam when the field commanders, well, perfectly capable people, desperately just wanted to stop the North Vietnamese in their tracks and divert all American air assets to that use. Nixon thought it was far more important to put coercive pressure on Hanoi because he wanted them back in the peace negotiations because he thought unless there was a proper peace deal, then when the Americans eventually left, that the two government in Saigon would not be able to survive. Well, as we know, he got a peace agreement and still the two government didn't survive. But that led him in 1972 to put enormous on the military and he overread, tried to override their judgment. He didn't succeed that easily, but it caused a lot of friction. Eventually got his way because the Americans just had enough assets to do both things. I also found just on, on passing, one of the interesting things about that was this was the moment 
when modern weaponry came in, when precision-guided weapons first made their mark, and when the Americans were able to destroy a bridge, a couple of weapons rather than a large number of sorties over a number of days. And Dixon wasn't impressed by this because he didn't think that had the psychological impact of loads of B-52s flying above you, dropping bombs. So I thought that was, again, striking about just the different perspectives of a politician and a general about how to use military power. You look at, in some depth into insubordination, both, yeah. the, both for good and for worse, the generals who do not follow orders. Who strikes you as the best example to, to look at to understand the role of insubordination? Douglas MacArthur or Ariel Sharon? Well, MacArthur was set the, set the standard, if you like, by trying to follow a different foreign policy and, dis, frankly, disobey orders. So MacArthur in Korea in April 1951, how the insubordination started well before that, is the classic study. And, of course, he was fired. I devote a chapter to Ariel Sharon, the Israeli general who eventually became Defence Minister, then Prime Minister, who was famed for his insubordination. He had no confidence whatsoever in the views of anybody other to the side of him, certainly above it, and believed that only he understood how to fight wars properly. And the only people who take any notice of were his subordinates, because he believed the closer you were to the battle, the better you had an understanding of what needed to be done. And the Israeli high command struggled constantly to keep him under some sort of control, but he was, a, in his own way, a brilliant and audacious general and delivered success. When he was in charge in 1982 as Minister of Defence, it was catastrophic because he carried on his insubordination in a way to the Prime Minister, Menachem Begin, and other members of the cabinet while ordering the Israeli Defence Forces into a calamitous campaign which ended up in Beirut and the massacres in the Palestine refugee camps of Shabra and Shatila and so on, because there wasn't anybody who was able to control it. I think you see in the attitudes of, of some of his masters like Moshe Dayan that they saw Sharon as somebody who was worth having despite the problems he caused, but they had to constantly work to tame. When they couldn't, it was catastrophic. How did you come to think about the value of refusing to follow orders, or at least of being being sceptical, questioning orders that were coming down. I'm thinking particularly of, for instance, Mike Jackson in in Kosovo or during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yeah, I think the, the Kosovo case study is a very interesting one. This was in 1999, June 1999. In fact, the, and the war is in practice over NATO, but in a rather painful way, not particularly painful since it was slow, didn't it was particularly costly for NATO. It brought Milosevic in in Belgrade to heal, and Kosovo was going to be free of Serbian troops. But there was an issue about the peacekeeping mission. And the Russians, who'd actually been quite helpful in getting Milosevic to capitulate, did this in some way through gritted teeth, and they saw it as their job as to, to find some way of, of protecting their Slavic brothers and tried to take an initiative of their own to get to Pristina Airport. Wes Clark, who was the supreme commander, understood this probably better than Jackson. But Jackson was the guy on the ground, and he reckoned correctly, I think, that he could deal with the Russians. So actually, Clark was probably right on the bigger issue, but he was caught up in an incredibly messy command structure. One of the problems that they showed is when you have coalition warfare with the UK, 
since having its own red car to say, no, we won't do this, which is basically not Jackson himself, but his superiors waved around in the end. It's very difficult for the Supreme Commander to get everybody to do what they're supposed to do, or what he wants them to do. And the other problem I illustrated, again, feature of modern operations, is this was taking place over a number of time zones. And with Clark answerable to, who was in Europe, while the, the American seniors were in Washington, but some of them were traveling to Macedonia, and other, there were other Americans in Moscow, which is on a different time zone altogether. And there's just too many players. I call the chapter too many cooks. So everybody's getting their wires crossed. In the end, it wasn't that consequential. But as an example of, the, uh, of a system that is about as far away as you can imagine from the idea of a supreme leader setting down orders and cascade down the chain of command so that everybody knows what to do, this was it. I want to ask you one one brief final question on the Cuban Missile Crisis. It's such a fascinating chapter of the book. You write in that chapter, this is the Cuban Missile Crisis of October 1962, the most important what ifs concern who else might have been in charge or the different decisions that might have been taken. How did you come to think about the role that leadership and command played in averting what could have been a real catastrophe in that situation? Yeah, it's a sort of theme of the book in a way that when you're looking at issues of command, you've got to look at the political leaders as well as the generals, especially in this case, because both Kennedy and Khrushchev were fearful of escalation. One of the issues raised in the Cuban Missile chapter, actually, to some extent, more on the Russian side than on the American, is about how much control they actually were able to exercise over individual actions. But, and it's a difficult one in the sense that it's a result of past decisions by these two men that you get yourself in the crisis in the first place. So how other people would have acted, would they have been there at all? All one can say is that both of them, certainly Kennedy, were really anxious not to have a nuclear war. And unlike, say, Nixon, who was prepared to pretend that he was crazy and a bit wild, if it might intimidate his opponents a bit, Kennedy really didn't want to do that. He wanted his opponents to think very hard about the risks that might lead to nuclear war. In fact, Kennedy to Khrushchev's irritation would go on about the risks of escalation to point out the situations could develop in which neither man was fully in control. So Kennedy had thought about this a lot, and that explains a lot of his sort of agitation, the crisis that nobody did things that went further than he wanted to go. Khrushchev, I don't think, had the same understanding of what was quite going on, especially in, in, in the Caribbean and with his submarines which is where some of the most dangerous incidents occurred. But, it, but his intent was as clear. Do you have concerns about how that might go now if we had a repeat of that in 2022? It's difficult. I think in one sense, the idea that nuclear war is a really bad idea is quite ingrained, even with Putin. And I, I think we've moved, uh, and the Cuban Missile Crisis was one moment in the movement from the idea that nuclear war was a thing you deliberately threatened in order to get your way, to nuclear war is the sort of thing that could happen if you're not careful. Uh, so I think that's where we are now. I don't think anybody, despite the situation at the moment, imagines that, that threatening nuclear war is a particularly good idea. But as we're seeing with the power plant, 
And things happen when you're using high explosives all over the place and when your targeting isn't always precise. Things happen and that can set more dangerous things in motion. There's a basic message of the book. It's if you're going to launch a war, think very hard about where it may end up. And one of the problems that keeps on recurring is people launch wars on the basis of an optimistic plan A and then suddenly find themselves in something much longer and more drawn out, but they really don't quite know how to wear. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap this up. We've managed to touch on a fraction of the wonderful case studies that are, that are in this book. The book is Command, the Politics of Military Operations from Korea to Ukraine, which I heartily recommend. So Lawrence Friedman, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. Good to talk to you. This has been The World Review from The New Statesman. You can read all our international coverage on our website, newstatesman.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend and please rate us and leave a nice review. The producer has been Adrian Bradley. The team will be back later in the week. I'm Katie Stallard. Thanks for listening and until next time. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together, we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.